Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Good morning, church family. In Ecclesiastes, the first chapter, the teacher says, Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. So let me give you some perspective here. The teacher is speaking from a perspective that does not include God. So w- the, the, let me give you the Hebrew word for meaningless. Uh, the Hebrew word is hevel, and it means something like breath or vapor. And the implication is that there's, when it uses the word meaningless, it's something with no substance to it. It's It's void. And so what the teacher is saying here is that without God, life has no meaning and life has no substance. It's like a vapor and there's no weight to it. Okay, it uses a very similar word whenever, actually the same word when it refers to, often when it refers to idols. It's one of the implications there is that idols have no meaning. There's no substance to idols. Okay, so let me contrast that with Isaiah chapter 6 when the seraphim are Isaiah is having a vision, and the seraphim are proclaiming. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Let me give you the Hebrew word for glory. The Hebrew word is kavod, okay? And it literally means heaviness, something that has weight, or in other words, something that has substance to it, okay? So the earth is filled with God's heaviness is one of the implications there. Something that's heavy, okay, is something that has substance to it. So hevel is meaningless, vapors, or no substance, but kavod is glory, something heavy, and something with substance. So the thing is that without God, life is empty and meaningless, but with him comes a holy heaviness. Okay, so idols are empty and speechless, but the Lord is heavy and purposeful. So church, I want to compel us to worship this, the Lord this morning for his glory. The thing is that he is a God of power. He creates value where there is none, and he puts meaning into things that have none. He gives purpose and direction to people who are lost. And unlike a mute idol, he speaks, and his presence causes the earth to shake. And not only is he powerful and glorious, but he is good. Church, let's worship him this morning. All right, if you'll tell the person you're talking to, Romans chapter 12, then we'll, we'll head that direction. Romans 12. We're going to take a look at one verse this morning real close. We'll mention a couple others, but a verse in Romans 12. Um, I don't know if you saw the kids jumping around with lots of energy, but we got some kids that got lots of energy. And, you know, the hard thing about that is there's lots of energy in little direction. You know what I mean by that? Everywhere, going everywhere. And when you get older, you got lots of direction, <laughs> a little, little energy and I think the sweet spot is where we need to be, don't you? That we got, we have direction, energy. There's a verse in the Bible. I, w- I wanted to share that today, but I felt like we needed to talk about this verse instead. Uh, it says it's uh, Proverbs 19:2, and it says it's not good to have zeal without knowledge. We need to have the, we need to have the drive, and we also we need to be informed, and we need to know what God's calling us to do. And the word for knowledge there suggests not just the not just knowledge about, but wisdom, how to apply that knowledge. That's really important. Well, we're getting ready to send our kids off to kids' camp, and our students have just recently come back, and it got me thinking about the big event 
And uh, let's, uh, before we get into this, and I forget, let's take a moment and pray for our kids going to camp. Would you do that with me? Father, thank you that um, we have good leaders that are taking our kids to kids camp. We thank you that um, you love to encounter um, and give the knowledge of God to, to the little ones, Lord. And we're just praying, Lord, for all of our kids that are going to camp, that you would open up their hearts to more of you, that they'd have an experience with God that would carry with them all of their lives. And uh, we're praying, Lord, for uh, it to be a safe and a fun and an impactful time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the purpose of the big event, and you can you can plug in there whatever you'd like. If the big event is youth camp or if it's a revival or if it's maybe this moment where we have an encounter with God is, is to encounter Jesus. And we know that encountering Jesus changes everything. I don't know if you will ever see a place in Scripture where somebody comes into contact with Jesus and they go away and they're not somehow changed. Now, you might, you might say, well, they didn't accept him as Lord or they chose not to follow him. Yes, but even in rejecting him, there's change that happens. We can't, we can't encounter Jesus without being affected by it. He is polarizing. He's the kind of personality uh, that if you come into... Uh, proximity to him is going to affect you in one way or another. And so I think that's the purpose of the big event, that it's why we, uh, we have revival meetings. It's why we uh, take time on our, uh, on our week to come to church. It's why we send our kids to camp. Uh, it's an opportunity to be encouraged and impacted by Christ. I was telling somebody yesterday at our men's event that uh, those moments in my childhood when I felt God's presence uh, made me take seriously the things of God when I was older. So I, I had known and and felt the presence of God. I, I've said this before, but uh, one of the songs we used to sing um, was Jehovah Jireh. Remember that? My provider's grace is sufficient. And I don't know why, but even when I was a little kid, I would just weep when we would sing that song. I felt the presence of God in that moment. And it made me take seriously the things of God even... Um, even when I was a little bit older and wasn't wasn't thinking so much about the Lord, I always had that sense that that there's a reality to who God is and what He does. There were those times around the altar being prayed for, worshiping in the church, and the teaching and preaching, the memorizing of Scripture uh, was like cocooned in my soul uh, when I was a kid. All of that happened, and then then it was kind of like waiting for me to surrender to Christ, and it all came alive. My memory of it, um, my experience of him, everything, it came alive. And it all happened on a Thursday night um, at a youth conference when I was 17. And that was 30 years ago next month. So if you want to do the math, you can figure out how old I feel today. I was raised um, in church, regularly going to church, a regular church-going family. And I've, I feel like I've been a serious Christian for these 30 years now, ministry for 28. And I've seen this happen a lot from time to time when I was a kid. Our denomination uh, promoted a lot of enthusiasm in our worship and in our service of God. And that, that's fine. That's good. Um, we, need to be on, we needed to be on fire for God. We still do. And many times I saw that if the congregation was not worshiping with enough enthusiasm, the pastor would step in and he would say something like, we need to really get, get in gear here and we need to get fired up for what God's doing. And, and, and those things can all be really good and have their place. But, but I wonder what we would do when the enthusiasm 
isn't there. And I saw many people respond to it when the enthusiasm wasn't there. Uh, when they were alone and they were going through something difficult, they didn't really know how to handle that. And I think that with the enthusiasm, we need to teach that uh, what Joe was talking about this morning, there's real substance to our faith. There's something that gets us through this beyond the feel-goods. Like, we love to come together and we worship, and that ought to be part of it. But we need to be able to live the Christian life faithfully when we have no cheerleaders, when we're by ourselves, when we're going through difficulty, and, and we need the encouragement of one another. But we need to have some kind of substance that will help us to get through and to press on and, and to go beyond that moment and to not rely completely on our emotions. You might think I'm saying today that we should be unemotional or somber, but, but that would be a mistake to think that I'm saying that. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, please hear the advice that I heard from leaders who've seen it all. One of, one of the leaders, goes, his family goes way back to the Azusa Street Revivals, and one of the things that they used to say is, it doesn't matter how high you jump, what matters is how straight you walk when you come back down. And just to translate that, because maybe you saw some jumping today, but sometimes we get carried away in our enthusiasm, but then people walk out the door and they don't live the Christian life. You, you know what I'm talking about? Like, they can get real fired up in worship, but they're not living Christianly. They lie at their job, and they cheat on their spouse, and they, they, uh, they live a life of duplicity. And what God wants is for us not just to get excited, but to carry that excitement forward in life. He desires that from us. He wants us to, to live that kind of walk. And so, uh, in other words, the excitement is great, but you have to have character to walk straight. And so we need zeal. We need lasting zeal. And I think Romans chapter 12 tells us that. If you, if you know the, the layout of the book of Romans, you know that in the first 11 chapters, it's teaching of the great doctrines of our salvation. Come on, aren't you glad for, I don't know if you're so glad for this one, but <laughs> Romans 1 where it talks about the fall of humanity, that though uh, God was, was in some ways apparent to us through nature, and through his revelation, we turned our back on him desiring to create gods of our own. I'm summarizing. Okay? And then Romans 3.23 uh, talks about us all being sinners and that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we go through the book of Romans and we find out the great truths of our salvation that while we, we couldn't accomplish the righteousness that God requires of us, Christ accomplished that and imputed it to us through Christ's death and resurrection. Aren't you glad for that? Okay, So it'd be great if it were all teaching, but then it comes to chapter 12, and suddenly a uh, page is turned there, and it's, it starts to talk about in light of what God has done in salvation, we need to live a certain way. Okay, It's not all about teaching us what Christ has done. The moment comes when we have to apply that to our lives and be transformed by it. And so Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2, and, and all the chapters following are the practicalities of living out that says in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Okay? The, the word for true and proper there is, in the Greek, is logi- logical. It's, it's the word we get logical from. And some translations say it's your reasonable service. In other words, in response, this is what is reasonable for us, that we ought to live in this particular way. And so God calls us to live in this particular way because of what Christ has done. More on that in a moment, but I want to take us to our real verse here. That, that's a real verse too. <laughs> but I want to take us to our focal verse today, 
and that's uh, in the paragraph that starts uh, in verse 9, and we'll come through verse 9. Love must be sincere, hate what's evil, cling to what's good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. And then this, verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. That's the focus of today's message is that God wants us to be zealous, not in the, the, the sense of hype, not in the sense of uh, enthusiasm that lacks substance. I'm so glad that our songs and the call to worship mention the difference between substance and what is vacuous, because there's a lot of stuff in life that has the appearance of importance that's not important. Think about our massive sporting events. We put on all kinds of publication for that, and at the end of the day, it's a game. I mean, think about how much money gets poured into that. And at the end of the day, it's a game and it doesn't matter. And when we stand before God in eternity, he's not going to care how many goals were scored, how many touchdowns were achieved, how many home runs were hit. He's not going to care about the games. There's more important things that receive a lot less hype. And so the point that I'm trying to make here is that he wants us to have a certain kind of zeal. And so we'll talk about that. Verse 11, once again, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Let's talk about this first thing. It says, never be lacking in zeal. We, we tend to think of zeal as some kind of passion or some kind of enthusiasm, some emotional response, but zeal is really much more than that. He has to, it has to be understood as more than excitement. Christian zeal is the driving passion of our life. It's not just what we think about when we're feeling it. It's also what we think about when we're not exactly feeling it, okay? I can tell you sometimes I get done on Sunday preaching. The sermon didn't go the way I thought it would go, okay? Uh, did you know that that happens? And uh, you probably knew that, know that better than I do. But it didn't go the way I thought it would, and I go home, and I, I'm tell you, I'll sit in my chair and groan like, oh. But you know what I'm thinking? I'm not thinking most of the time. Uh, let's give up on ministry altogether. Let me stop being a pastor. No, you know what I'm thinking is next time this is how I'm going to preach this message. I'm thinking about what the purpose and direction and the passion of, that God's put in my life is. And so for me, the zeal is I don't, I don't really feel it real good on Sunday afternoons sometimes. And I'm not trying to ask for pity. You understand that. I'm telling you honestly and sincerely that when we're serving God, there are moments when you don't feel very good about it. And yet, if you're driven by zeal, by passion, this passion that we're talking about, it's not about just feeling good. It's about being directed with an energy, okay? And that goes beyond how we may feel at any particular moment. You might think, uh, if you've heard me preach enough, that I am, like, I think we all ought to be part of, like, the Vulcan nation. No emotions, pure logic, <laughs> driven by a purpose, never thinking, never feeling, but that's not true. I just know how big of an idol emotions have been in my life. And I have, to, I have to battle that all the time, is that I do not I do not live, and we should not as Christians live by how we feel. That's called sensuality. We're living by our senses. No, what God wants us to do is live by purpose. And if we live by purpose, he will bring in the requisite emotions that we need to live through all that. We have to have his help to do that. So he says... Here, the first thing, never be lacking in zeal. It's more than excitement. It's the driving passion of life. It's giving our thoughts, our affections, 
and our energy in a direction. It's like when you're young, you've got lots of energy, and you're running a lot of different directions. And when you're in that sweet spot, you find that there's the energy and there's the direction. And both of those things come together, great things can happen. And that's what God wants from us is a kind of zeal. And the interesting thing to me, anyway, is that this isn't the normal word for zeal here. This is a different word which carries the idea of running to something. Okay, so when we, we hear this word for zeal, it's not the typical word that the New Testament writers would use for zeal. It's a different word, and it means to hasten after, to run after with energy. And so we do that. We, we, we pursue with a kind of energy. Grant Osborne, in his commentary, says zeal means not only to be excited about a thing, but also to work hard at accomplishing it. James Edwards He says the real enemy of zeal is not uh, opposition, as if, you know, there's a culture out there that doesn't like that we're really serving God with passion. He said that's not the real enemy of zeal, because do you know that the church has generally thrived under persecution? Okay, do you know that? That when the persecution happens, it does, it seems to do exactly the opposite of what we would expect. The church booms and grows under that. So it's not enemy opposition from the devil or from the world that would slow us down. He says the, um, the biggest enemy is complacency, being neither cold nor hot. The ardor of the spirit does not dissipate in emotionalism, but produces the constructive energy of service. So he's talking about that this is not just a, an empty emotion that we're feeling, but it's this impassioned service for God. Here the word lacking means uh, slacking. Don't slow your roll when it comes to serving God. Sometimes I've seen this again and again, um, and I've wondered about it in my own life. I didn't, I didn't go to youth camp when I was a student. Uh, I, I went once. I take that back. And that was the year that I gave my life to Christ. Um, but I, I've seen this as a youth pastor, and I've seen it as a pastor, that a lot of times we'll have these moments where kids will go to camp or, or I went to camp, and then when we get back into the day-to-day regular life, the great commitments that were made sometimes begin to fade. And that sounds like you might think, Pastor, don't say that. You're going to jinx this. No, what I'm trying to do is encourage us that if we're going to see this carry on, we have to continue to feed the flame. You see what I mean? That it doesn't just happen by accident. Like you just get one big dose at youth camp, and that, that's good for a year. We have to continue to be in fellowship. We have to continue to be in the Word. We need to continue to seek the Lord and, and feed on Him. And then when that happens, we have the energy to serve Him in the way that He wants us to. And so the Bible tells us, this is a command, by the way. It's not an optional suggestion like, hey, guys, it would be a really good thing if we just didn't lack in zeal. No, this is God saying, Never be lacking in zeal. Another way of saying that is be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to continue to have God's work happening in our lives in the moment. Do you remember in the Old Testament, that's just by way of illustration, they were given in the wilderness, they were given manna every day, right? Do you remember that? And somehow it would come up from the ground, and do you know what manna means? Manna means, what's this? What's this? They don't know what manna exactly is, except that God gave these honey bunches of oats. 
I, I don't know, that came up out of the ground every morning that they could put into a cereal or pancakes or whatever. And they would eat that. But the rule was you can only collect enough for the day. And if you try to keep it overnight, it'll spoil. The worms will get to it. I, I don't know how it went, but it wouldn't last more than a day. And And then on... Friday, before the Sabbath, they could collect twice as much, and somehow, God's miraculous touch, that would be sustained through the weekend until they collected again. But um, I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter maybe 4, it says that he gave them manna in the wilderness so that he would teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God that God was going to miraculously sustain them, but he was not going to give them a whole big portion and say, this is enough for you all this time. You have to come and receive your daily bread. Okay, that is so important, is that it's not, if you're living Sunday to Sunday in your Christian life, that is meager. That's starving. Okay, we need to be in the word of God every day. We come to have a family meal together on Sundays, but every day of the week we need to be reading the Bible. We need to be praying, right? I, I know that's stuff we all know, but let me let me say it and let's hear it again because it's so important. Never, never be lacking in zeal. Don't slow your roll when it comes to your spirituality, okay? So this is a, a statement that's being made. Never lack in this kind of passion that keeps you driven in the direction of what God is doing, who he is, knowing him more, serving him, all the things that would go along with that. Never be lacking in zeal. The thing that happens after this is that there's these two statements that run parallel to each other. We don't exactly see it in English, but it's there in Greek. It's very clear uh, that the, new, the next two statements reinforce the first one. The first one is never be lacking in zeal. Okay, so we know that. How do we do that? How do we go about that? And so the next two statements are the means by which we never lack in zeal. Okay? It's telling us how to not lack in zeal. Okay? Have anybody ever here lacked in zeal? I can tell you I have. That sometimes the weight or the weariness can weigh down on us. And it's not just me that's felt that. Moses felt that. I think David felt that. I'm not putting myself in that category. But I'm saying that great people of God have felt that. Jesus felt that. Remember, the the angels came and ministered to him. Elijah and Moses came and ministered to him, and it seems to me that maybe uh, encouraged him in the purpose that God had for him. Okay? Um, not only that, but Paul writes, uh, we were weary beyond measure. We, dis- we despaired even of life itself in 2 Corinthians. And then he writes to the Galatians and says, don't be weary in doing good, because in due season you'll reap if you don't give up. And so this is a common thing, and the thing that occurs to me, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, is that we have to we have to come back again, and we have to feed what God has done in our lives. So the next thing that is said here, so the first thing is never be lacking in zeal. How do we do that? The first response to that, or the first means by which that happens, is we're to keep our spiritual fervor. That sounds really uh, kind of a weird way to say that, but this is the means. And so the way this is structured... Uh, means that these two statements tell us how to not lack in zeal, how to maintain that zeal, how to keep your spiritual fervor uh, with serving the Lord. And so I was interested to, to look at this and find out exactly what, what it means by fervor. I like to define words. I think we get too 
um, loose and careless in our words, and with that, we start to lose a little bit of meaning. But when we, we really hone in on what does this mean, it gives us some substance that we can grab onto. Did you know that fervor, our English word fervor, uh, is a word that comes from Latin, and it means to boil. Did you know that? Fervor means to boil. Originally, in its Latin form, it, it means to boil or to glow, but for our purposes, boil. And it's an interesting thing that most of the words that are used uh, here to translate this, the Greek word are like that. King James says, uh, be fervent. The Revised English Bible says ardor. Uh, NRSV says ardent, and then NET goes in a different direction altogether and says enthusiasm, which means to breathe life into or bring life into. Uh, it's good because it captures the meaning for us in English, but it doesn't really carry over what the original is trying to tell us. All of these words, except for the last one, relate to heat. And do you know what heat does? It changes things. Come on, isn't that true? You plop your egg in there, doesn't that smell bad, doesn't it? You plop your egg in there, and you boil it, and then it comes to the surface, right? Am I, am I describing that right? I don't boil eggs every day, but I think it kind of rises, and you kind of you begin to know when it's done. But something's happening on the inside in that boiling water, even though you don't see it on the outside, right? Something is changing there because heat changes changes things. And, and here, this is talking about that kind of boiling. And so when it says, keep your spiritual fervor, it's talking about keep your Christian life boiling. And we think of boiling as angry or mad, but this is talking about something else. You could probably see a close connection when you hear Jesus saying that if anyone, if anyone has the spirit, that they'll be kind of boiling up with the, the springs of life when he's talking to the woman at the well. Okay, there's a boiling here. And here's the other thing, is that the way that this is, it says, uh, keep your spiritual fervor, it doesn't, it's, it's kind of the NIV's way of bringing over a thought, but it's made an interpretation here. And the literal meaning here is, in the spirit, boil. In the spirit, boil. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So it's not just keep your spiritual fervor, but if you want to not be lacking in zeal, then in the spirit, whatever that means, boil. Now we're, now we're at a place of understanding. Because the word uh, for human spirit and the word for Holy Spirit, you can't tell the difference just by looking at the word. It's spelled exactly the same. Okay, So the only way that you can tell here is from context what's meant. Does it mean in your spirit boil, or does it mean in the Holy Spirit boil? Have this, have this intensity about you. Well, you can't tell the difference from the words. They didn't capitalize things in the original. Well, they did actually. They capitalized every word in the, uh, the oldest Greek manuscripts that we have. So you can't tell what are proper nouns and uh, what are more common nouns. Um, so the only way to tell is context, and if you look at the structure, then there's a parallel, because the Greek is this, in the spirit boil, in the Lord serve. In the spirit boil, in the Lord serve. You, you see there that there are two names that are mentioned, two 
members of the Trinity that are mentioned, the Spirit and the Lord, the Spirit and the Lord. And I think this stands out. I think it suggests the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know that I would like to take a long time here and and justify all the reasons for my position, but I'm not sure most of you care. Uh, Besides, in Paul, uh, wherever the human spirit is mentioned in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit's not far away. Okay, so when it's talking about this, if you if you want to take it as in your you know in your spirit, boil for God, <laughs> sounds so weird in our, our our thinking, doesn't it? But this is exactly what it means. It means to have that kind of heat and intensity that causes you to boil up and to be ready to change things. And you know what happens if you just leave a boiling pot on the stove? What happens? It'll boil over, won't it? Okay, and I think there's a sense in which that's a good thing in the Christian life, don't you? That he wants, a, he wants our lives not to be just contained, but to be impactful and overflowing. Okay, so I think it suggests the Holy Spirit. I would like to take time here, but um, the whole thing is that whether it means Spirit with a capital S or Spirit with a small s, the the effect of it is the same, is that we're to be we're to be on fire for God, okay? And the sense here may be to be stirred up by the Holy Spirit, and this is a work that happens uh, with our cooperation, okay? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, uh, Paul is just giving these quick little statements about how to respond to different things within the church, and one of the things he says is, uh, dis- don't despise prophesyings, okay? And then, don't quench the Spirit, as if the Spirit Himself can begin to boil up within our lives. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, you probably already thought of this. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For the Spirit of God has not, uh, that God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So one of the ways not to begin to lax in our, in our um, zeal is to keep the fire of God going in our lives, to be, be boiling for God, and if I, if I can use that. I just hope that will stick with us today, that God wants us to be the kind of Christians that there's a, an intensity of heat about our love for Him and our passion to do what serves Him. So uh, there, I'm going to come to some practical ways that will uh, play out in just a moment. But the next thing I'd like you to know is if it says in the spirit boiling, the next thing is in the Lord serve, in the Lord serve. Okay. That so- sounds like a weird way to say it. It says serving the Lord in more of an English style. But in the New Testament, there are three words for serving. One of them relates to um, worship and uh, one of them relates to serving others or like doing doing particular tasks. And then there's this third one, which is the predominant word. They're not, they're about the same in, in their usage. But um, this other one has to do with obedience. Okay. So when it says serving the Lord or in the Lord serving, it's talking about not just worshiping, because that's an aspect of serving. It's not just talking about uh, doing things out of your love and kindness for other people, but it seems to be drawing here upon a sense of duty. Okay, can you hear my heart for just a moment? This is not something we like to talk about when it comes to our walk with God. We don't want to talk about duty. We want everything to flow spontaneously out of this love heart. That's, that needs to happen, I think. And, and there are times when um, we need to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because we're feeling it. 
you hear me? We need to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And sometimes I think that we need to have an attitude adjustment. We're not feeling it because our attitude's not in the right place. And sometimes the call to duty requires us to get on board and do the right thing even when we're not feeling it. And that's good because what we're doing is we're shaping our appetites. You know, I had a weird thing happen when I was growing up. My mom made me eat food that I didn't like. Anybody else have parents that did that? Okay, that's like nobody does that anymore. My parents made me eat food I didn't like. But I'll tell you what happened is after a period of time, I started to like it. We had a, we had some foster kids that were staying with us. I think I might have told you this. And one of them, uh, he did not, he didn't he he would lie a lot, but you can't do corporal punishment like you did with your own with your own children. And so my parents had to find creative ways to discipline. And one of them was, if you're gonna lie, you get buttermilk. You get to drink buttermilk. Anybody have buttermilk? Some of you like that probably. Well, when you're a kid, it's nasty, bitter. So um, he got to drink buttermilk. Well, what happened is after time, his his appetite changed and adjusted, and he liked buttermilk. But he didn't tell anybody. And so lying had no real consequence to him anymore because his appetites had changed because he was forced to do something. And I know that we're t- that's taken us a little away from duty, but when it comes to duty, sometimes having to do the right thing in obedience shapes who we are. Okay. Um, for another example for me is that um, reading is not, you might think that this, that I love just to read, but it wasn't always like that. I would have rather watched TV, but there were times when you're forced to read. And what I found is that, hey, I really liked it. I didn't know it, but my appetites were shaped by duty. And that can happen uh, for all of us. So when it says serving the Lord here, serving has the dual purpose uh, to, to motivate and to regulate our zeal. Okay? So think about this for a moment. When it says serving the Lord, if it just said serving um, and it, it left off who it was we're serving, we would find maybe little motivation to do that. But now we realize Paul is saying, if you want to maintain your spiritual fervor, remember that it's the Lord you're serving. Okay, This is, this is bigger than just be a servant. That's good. But serving the Lord. Remember what Paul said to servants back in the day? He said, don't serve men, but God. Whatever you do, do with all of your heart, not to men, but to God. That changes everything, doesn't it? When we realize who it is we're serving and why we're doing it, it adjusts and regulates. It first motivates, but then it also regulates. There are some areas of servanthood that we can't do because it's not in alignment with who God is and what he's called us to be. I wish I could think of an example, or I had written an example, but there are cert- we wouldn't serve we wouldn't serve the Lord, or we shouldn't serve the Lord in sinful ways. Make sense? Like there are sinful things that we could say. Well, I'm doing this for the Lord. Well, you can't be the best idol maker, for example, in Anchorage, unto the Lord. Do you see what I'm saying? That we have to, it has to be to the Lord. And so it regulates, not only uh, motivates, but it also regulates how we serve. And it regulates our zeal. 
you can be super zealous, but if you're uh, beating people up out of your zeal for God, like, you got to get saved or I'm going to beat you up. That's not serving the Lord. <laughs> See, it regulates. That, that's a better example than the idol makers because I don't think, hopefully, you're not making idols. But we, we uh, feed our zeal by serving the Lord, and there's something that um, can become... Uh, can become habit forming in that, or can become rewarding to where we want to do it again. Okay, uh, if you're serving in one particular way, you may find that in serving the Lord, it actually feeds your zeal. And here's the other thing: is that when you pour yourself out for God, He be, He pours back in. Okay, and when He does that, we start to hunger more and more for His presence. I'm not saying you can't get burned out; you can, but I think that if everything is operating the way that it should be, and there's times of rest that are measured in with our service for God, then serving the Lord ought to be, ought to also feed our soul in a way that we want to come back to it again and again. Okay? Are you with me? And if you're not with me, will you think about it? (laughs) When Elijah uh, hit a rut in ministry, this is right after, like, the big moment, the glorious moment when he called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, and then he heard from Jezebel that she wanted to kill him, and so he ran off, and he found himself alone with the Lord, and the Lord said to him, asked him this question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Remember that? What are you doing here? And he said, well, I've been serving the Lord with zeal, and I'm the only one, and now they want to kill me. And then the Lord said to him, uh, I have 7,000 others. I haven't bowed their knee to Baal. What are you doing? And then he says again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I've been serving the Lord with zeal. And there's no one else following me. I'm all alone. And do you know what God does? He met, he met with God. God gave him another assignment. Here's the significance of that, as you'll see this often, is that when people are burned out, he doesn't disconnect them from the work of God. He gives them more to do. Come on, it's true. He gives them something else to do. And he says, I want you to go anoint this guy. I want you to anoint that guy. I want you to anoint that guy. Elisha, uh, Haziel, Jehu, anoint them to be king. Your work isn't done. What are you doing here? Sitting on the sideline. He's calling him to that. And then God met with him and renewed his vigor. When Moses was discouraged, um, God gave him some help. And then he also gave him a new vision. He said, I, I want to, uh, let me see your glory. He said, I can't let you see my glory and you live. You can, you can almost hear that tone. I can't let you see that. But I can pass by and see the afterglow. And that's, that's what happened. And uh, Moses is transformed. And there's something that happens in moments like that. We see it with the Apostle Paul. And we see it with Jesus who was weary. And he was ministered to by angels and Moses and Elijah who encouraged him in the work that he had ahead. Jesus the Son of God, in his flesh, needed some encouragement to renew the vigor and zeal. And so do we. We do too. Serving the Lord. And you know, every time people went up mountains, they came back down to need. This is true too. Every time they go up mountains and there's some great experience with God, there's needy people at the bottom. We think that if we can just get in touch with the Lord, there won't be any more need. No. It's for the need. That's why we need the zeal. And serving the Lord, we need, to, we need to have that encounter with him. So it seems to me 
the antidote to a lagging zeal is meeting with God and renewing your serve. All this has to be done in view of God's mercy. Romans 12, 1, which we've already read, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. This you're pleasing. Uh, this is your true and proper worship. might make you a little uncomfortable to think about it this way. Uh, if you think about our response to what God has done as somehow making it up to him, like offer your bodies now to God and you'll make up to him um, what he's done for you. If you think of it that way, you ought to be uncomfortable because that's not what's intended here. We can't make it up to him. All of our choices are response. I was thinking of that when we're worshiping today. Every every choice that we uh, every choice that we make that's Godward is response. Every worship that we offer vocally is response to God having first given us breath. Every time we do something in service to him, it's because God first has done something for us. And we're not like playing this one-on-one exchange game where it's this one-on-one equality. God, if you do something for me, I'll do something for you. No, you never make it up. You can never get on that game plan because we can never get to the point where we're exchanging one-on-ones with God. He's always outdone us. Are you with me? He's always given better gifts than we've given him. So when we're called upon to respond to God's mercy, it's not this response of, well, now, God, we're even. You gave me your life. I gave you mine. We're even. It's not. It's not the same thing. But a gift of one kind requires a response in kind. Are you with me? It calls for that. It happens all the time where uh, someone makes a sacrifice and the other person doesn't respond. And if we forget what he did, what Christ did, we won't t- start to feel, uh, we'll start to feel that we're making a great sacrifice if we, we give anything to him. It happens all the time. Our parents cared for us. They worked to make sure that we had food and clothes. They gave us gifts for birthdays and Christmas. And if they ask us to do anything, we thought it was too much. Anybody with me, a spoiled teenager a little bit? Your parents did all of that for you, and you're like, can you take out the garbage? Ah, I can't be bothered with that. I've got too much on my plate. And it happens with friends, too, who are there for you when you need them. And when they need you, you haven't got the time. And uh, people treat the church like that, too. When they need help, it's given. But when it's time for services or any type of volunteer, they're nowhere to be seen. How can we reconcile all that? When I was a teenager, I was embarrassed by my parents. Anybody else here willing to admit that? <laughs> when you're a teenager, you're a little bit embarrassed by your parents. And it wasn't for me anything that they've done, except that they were teenagers in the 1950s, and I was a teenager in the 90s, 40 years later. So automatically you thought they're uncool because of that. Um, and I was embarrassed of them, and it never occurred to me that they were em- ever embarrassed of me. Come on, is that true? never occurred to me that that could be the case. Uh, when I was a baby, I'm going to tell you a secret, I pooped my pants, and it made noises, and it stunk. And it probably embarrassed my mom to have to deal with that as a, a mom. And uh, not only that, um, when I was a little kid, I would sometimes throw a fit in the store if my mom didn't buy me the toy that I wanted and make a big noise, and I didn't care who saw it or who knew. 
I thought, in fact, I can use these people against her. I can embarrass her into getting this for me. But my mom was strong, and she resisted. She was probably embarrassed, but she didn't push my cart in a general direction where I'm sitting in the little seat with the legs hanging out, you know what I'm talking about, in the grocery cart, and just say, I've had enough with you. You're too embarrassing. No, she took me home and spanked me like she should have. Um, and then when I was a teenager and I had bad haircuts that they didn't understand and clothes they didn't understand, it never occurred to me that they might be embarrassed of me in that. They, they loved me and they didn't disown me as a response. I should not have been embarrassed to them, of them or tried to distance myself from them, but I did. And this might sound like a pleading for a better world. That would be nice. But today I just want to see uh, that God has done something first for us, and it calls for a response. And so if I'm encouraging us today to have zeal, this is not me saying let's muster up all of our feelings and, and somehow uh, get super gritty in this because we have to do it out of duty for God because of look at all what he's done for us. I'm asking us to think about today what God has done for us in giving us Jesus. Jesus gave his life for us. What's the proper response to respond in kind and give our lives to him? And part of that is our energy. Folks, sometimes you just don't feel like it. Sometimes we don't have the energy. You know what I found is that if I step out and do what God wants me to do, he gives the energy. He does. How many have experienced that? You step out and do it. You didn't feel it at the moment, but you did it in response, an obedient response, and he met you there with all the resources you need to accomplish it. Isn't it wonderful? He's done that for us. Now, we can't live off of hype. I I've looked up hype today just because I wanted to know where this came from, but did you know that our word that we use for hype, which we generally think of as some kind of enthusiasm, comes from 1930s drug culture? Did you know that? I did not know this, and it came as a shock to me. In 1930s drug culture, they uh, used it to stimulate artificially through hypodermic needles. And so the word hype, hypodermic, right? So to stimulate artificially. I thought that was interesting. That's where our word hype comes from. And I've noticed something that happens when we emphasize this artificial stimulation. The reason artificial stimulation, this is where we have to somehow come together and and build ourselves up and hype ourselves up into something. The reason why that can be so dangerous is, one, is it's artificial and doesn't have substance. Like, it's not coming from reflecting upon the goodness of God. It's not coming from a true heart of love and devotion for him. It's coming from some kind of false sense of stirred emotions. And the other part that's so bad about that is that it's addictive. And we don't think we can live the true Christian life unless there's the hype, to go the artificial stimulation to go along with it. What if, like the psalmist, our heart was stirred by a noble theme? We thought about God. We reflected upon him. We were transformed by him. That's different altogether. Instead of being addicted to some kind of emotional drug, the problem with that is that it takes more and more to satisfy. And then we can become devoted to hype more than Jesus. And the test is whether we serve him with equal vigor, whether we have the intense emotions at that moment 
or not. There's a, a law C.S. Lewis talks about in the screw tape letters called the law of undulation. And he said, if, if you watch, you'll notice that this happens in all areas of life, that we get real excited about things, and then that excitement wanes. And then if we follow it long enough, we find that there's a building excitement, and then the excitement wanes. And he says, this is the law of undulation. You recognize that from science? It's the wave. And that happens in areas of life. And the key to Christian living is to not get thrown off when you get in the troughs. It's to keep going. It's to keep pursuing God. It's to have that zeal. It's never be lacking in zeal. You may not feel good today, but we're still going to worship the Lord. You may not feel good today, but we're still going to do the right thing. And being tired is an excuse for bad behavior. Okay? We don't have to stimulate artificially. It's not... It's not even the Christian music. It's not the shouting. It's not the dancing. It's not the crying. It's not the laughing. And all those things have a proper place in worship. You might have heard that I don't think we should have that, and that's not what I said. What I'm saying is that that is not the driver in our Christian life. Those are responses to what God's done. He's good. and we, There's times we ought to laugh. We ought to laugh out loud. We ought to be more exuberant in our worship at times than we are. And there are times when it's appropriate to cry. And there are times to dance, and we have no problem. If you want to dance here, this is free church. Don't be a distraction to anybody. Dance. It's fine. You can do that. But if you're relying on that that for your spiritual success, flimsy. Come on, it comes from other things. Those are all part of our response. We should stimulate, what should stimulate us to serve the Lord is a growing love for Jesus and seeing his kingdom come. All this will seem strange and distant to you if you've never made a full surrender to him. So today, um, you may need to, as we begin to wrap up here, you might need to come to a place where you confess your cold-heartedness towards God, that I've not been boiling the way that I should for you. My heart hasn't been on fire, if you prefer a different picture there. I'm not on fire for God. I'm kind of lukewarm. I hate that term because <laughs> it has my name in it. Right? We're not to be casual Christians. You might need to lay down some idols, take up substance. Maybe hype even is an idol or emotions are an idol. Like we serve that more than we do God. We'll serve God if we're feeling it, but we won't serve him if we're not. And that just tells me that God's not our God, but our feelings are. And you might need to change your plans. See, because God gets our lives and he gets our plans too. But what awaits those who do is love like you've never known, joy like you've never experienced, peace like you've never felt. So we want to be people who are driven. And I want all of our students who've gone to camp to live a consistent life. Can you imagine, if you're an adult here today, can you imagine if you had a, an experience with God as a teenager, and it never went away from that. The kind of life you can build with God. It's wonderful. Some of your examples of that, you're living examples of that, like you've avoided a lot of heartache and regret in life because of that very fact. What a wonderful thing it is. Let me mention a couple things, and we're going to close here. This is uh, Eugene Nida was a... Um, a massive missionary personality. He oversaw a lot of different missions. He was on the mission field 
uh, himself. Uh, I don't know the exact amount, but I would imagine at least 40 years, maybe maybe something up to 60 years connected with missions. And he noticed some megatrends within the mission movement in countries when the gospel was preached and they would have massive revival. And then he could watch that, how that was affected over generations. And he noticed that there was a cooling off of Christian movements if certain things happened. Okay, so listen, here's some of the things that he mentioned. Number one is the fact, the simple fact that energy gets used up and it has to be renewed. Did you know that? We, I mean, this is the way we live all the time. We today are going to, after this service, go and fill up on some more food because our bodies need it, right? We need more because we're not, uh, we're not independent beings in this world. We, we are dependent beings that require a source of energy outside of ourselves, plants, animals, um, mushrooms, I don't you know, the good kind. We need things like that to be sustained in our, in our bodies, right? And the same thing is true emotionally and spiritually. If you're not connected to the living vine, you're going to die. You have to stay connected to Jesus. I think it has to be, it has to be, our, he has to be our daily bread. Or we starve spiritually. We're saved in our connection to him. We're given life in our connection to him. Any disconnect from him, the Bible says, we're, we're thrown off or cast off or cut off and thrown into the fire. Energy gets used up. And so he noticed in those movements, Eugene Nida did, that those movements that didn't find renewed energy, they eventually died off. The next thing that he noticed is um, that... Energy can also be used in more, more and more conservative ways. It begins to lose its dynamic because news that we hear, the first news of the gospel and then other things we hear preached, it may even be happening now, is converted into behavior. Good, right? We want to hear the message. We want it to come out in our lives. And then behavior into habit, which is also good. But then habit being very efficient can also become irrelevant where it's just mere custom and it becomes devoid of reason. Listen, it's good to have good habits, and I think we should have good habits, but if we cease to think about why we have those habits, it gets a little dangerous when we go into autopilot and we don't think about the reasons that stand behind all of those things. We don't want to be just living this life out of mere custom. And also, faith tends to become creed, and creed ends up being mere recitation rather than really relevant to us. And I'm for creeds, by the way, maybe an outlier among Pentecostals, but I, I, I love creeds. But creeds, we have to reflect upon the true meaning behind it. Otherwise, it just becomes words, and we never want it to be, we never want it to be that. Ritual has value because it conserves energy from the original communication, but it has to be continually met with information. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, and then a loss of focus. We start to get our eyes on other things. This is where the movements change is that we, we stop uh, going after our original focus, which is Jesus and serving him, seeing the kingdom come, the, the focus of what being a Christian is all about. And this, is a, this has been the case in certain aspects of ultra-fundamentalism where uh, there's a tendency to contend with the brethren rather than contend for the faith. 
Come on. Do you know what I mean when I talk about churches that are infighting rather than fighting against the enemy and the world, the flesh? What? We, get, we get so focused on our internal conflicts and we become ineffective. That's a loss of focus. And Eugene Nida goes on to say that it's caused a lot of people to step away from evangelicalism because they can't stand the infighting that takes place. We talk about all of our labels, you know, we're this and we're that. It's fine to be a part of a, a particular movement. The problem is when that becomes divisive and we're, we're trying to uh, correct everybody else rather than realize there's a dying world out there that needs Jesus. You know, a person can't wage a conflict successfully with the full support of others unless the ultimate goals are more than conflict. Eugene Nida says, only mentally ill people can thrive on destruction when your whole thing is to tear down. He says, normal people are never content unless they are building and creating because we're made in the image of God, not Satan. We need to create. And then the fourth thing he says is when, listen closely, because we live in a visual culture, when the visual replaces the verbal, the thing that happens is people move away from duty and they move towards emotion. He's seen it over and over again. And I think what he's talking about probably is probably Catholicism because he dealt with a lot of Latin American countries where there was a lot of images that people looked to. And I think there's every bit as much of a real danger in American culture today that we become so fascinated with the image that we let go of the verbal and we have the word of God. God didn't give us a picture book and probably we wish he had. He gave us a book of words. And, you know, people say a picture is worth a thousand words. My question is, what words? Because you can say a lot more. You can see a picture of Jesus on the cross and go, huh, that's interesting if you've never heard the story. What is that? That's weird. It looks like a scarecrow. You might not know exactly what it means. But Paul says Christ died for our sins. Four words, he says, and more in that than the picture that you see. Christ died for our sins because it has meaning. And we're in danger. And so he noticed this. The dependence on the visual instead of the verbal soon shifts the focus from behavior to emotion. And feelings are fine, but they don't serve Christ the way that actions do. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll feel. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's a call to action. How do you stop the spiritual entropy or the spiritual decay that can happen? It's not good to have zeal without knowledge, right? So the two things that he noted in cultures where they continue to thrive spiritually is one is that new information must constantly be supplied. Now, don't hear inventing new doctrine. I'm saying there needs to be a perpetual and continual teaching of the word and a deepening in our understanding. I don't know if you know this. There's enough in this book to keep you occupied all of your life. You could study one book and be occupied your whole life. So I'm telling you, there are deep riches here. We don't need to act like, what are we ever going to do in terms of new information? There's always more to be taught. There's always more to learn. And then the second thing that relates to this is he noticed that new application has to be formed from this information. In other words, we need to learn to apply the new things we're learning. And churches that continually seek out the knowledge of God 
and apply it to their lives, those churches in those cultures thrive. That's so important. We want to be people who are never lacking in zeal. We want to be boiling with the Spirit of God. We want to be serving in the Lord. And if we do, I think it's going to make a difference. And I don't think there's any reason any Christian should ever fall away. Come on, true? We don't need to be these lackluster Christians. And I'm telling you that in the 47 years that I've been alive and where I've been observing, which is less than that, I've always been observant. When I was that kid that my mom was changing diapers, I wasn't observing this. But I did know that there were some people that at one time in our church used to be really close to the Lord, on fire. And I remember as a teenager when I came to the Lord wondering where they were, finding out they don't even go to church anymore. And and that's not like the only indicator of Christian life. But they're not really witnessing. They're not really thinking Christianly anymore. They're not living Christianly anymore. They've let everything slide. And, you, and you, your heart breaks because I looked up to them as a little kid. And now to find out they're not even really serving God, it's so sad. God has more for us than that. And today, today I think the, a proper response to him is to come to him and to say, Lord, I don't, if I've been cold, I want you to set me on fire. That's a great place to start. Amen. Bow your heads with me, and maybe we could stand and, and then do that. And I'm going to invite you to spend a few moments at the altar, and then we'll be out of here in a whiz, all right? Father, I just I know that it's your desire, this is your word, that you don't want us to be lacking in zeal. I pray, Lord, that you would set some on fire today that have been dispassionate towards you. Lukewarm, cold, cold-hearted. It's become mere obligation. It's not what you desire from us. You, you want there to be a white-hot love relationship between us and you. One that our lives are all geared towards, that we're, we're living for God in a fallen world. And there's so many things out there that can cool us off, that wants to throw wet blankets and cold ice on top of this fervor that we want to have for you. I pray, Lord, you stir us today so we might live more effectively, that it might boil over, that the, the warmth and the heat of this love for you would bring light and warmth to the lives of others, that they might know you as well. I reflect upon the fact that there's no light without heat. Those two things go together. I pray, Lord, if you make us impacting Christians, reaching our culture, that you would set us ablaze for you, we pray. And let it be for you, for you, Lord. We serve you. We obey you for your glory. Amen. Amen. If you've never uh, received Christ as Lord of your life, I want to invite you today to say to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I am in need of your forgiveness. Forgive me. Would you be Lord of my life? I, I recognize you died for my sins, that you rose again, and that in response I want to give my life to you and serve you. If you pray a prayer like that today, I believe God will meet you. I think probably the majority of us here are in one of two camps that we're either passionate and full of zeal for God, or we've let that slide a little bit. Would you allow God to
determine for you which one, which camp you're in? Would you say to him, Lord, would you reveal to me where, what you think about me? Not what I think about myself, but would you show me the truth of, of where I'm at? Would you be honest enough to say I need more of God? And maybe, maybe you've got the fire raging and there's a, your spirit's boiling for God. Would you say today, Lord, keep it going, keep it going. And respond to him. These altars are open. Let's take a few moments to respond to the Lord today. I'm going to. I need need that same touch of God as everyone else does. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.